I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow. In episode five, we enter the white room for a deep dive with Stefan Drake, the founder of DPS Skis. Drake has spent his entire life roaming the globe in search of deep snow and storm cycles. The result has been some of the most revolutionary ski shapes and technology the world has ever seen. Drake is a modern-day powder-surfing samurai with a total devotion to the craft. His dogmatic pursuit of the perfect powder experience lies at the core of his existence. He epitomizes the definition of a soul skier. Drake is an intensely intelligent person with intriguing insights into what drives one of the most revolutionary characters in the history of skiing. So here it is, episode five of Afterglow, with the one and only Stefan Drake. The city proper. Yeah, yeah. I uh, yeah I grew up there. I was born in Brazil. No way. Yeah, and my mom's Brazilian. We moved. Uh, yeah, we moved to New York when I was like one or so. My dad was working in Brazil, and so I grew up there. In, wow, in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how did you get into skiing? Uh, it was through my grandfather, really, who lived in Colorado, and he was a uh, uh, he was like a, a retired army colonel. And, uh, ironically, his wife, my grandmother, who I never met was a concert pianist. So they, uh, he lived in Colorado Springs in the early sixties. Uh, the Aspen music festival was happening and she would go up and play in residence for like for the summer. So it got to the point where, you know, this was before Aspen was this big ski town mm-hmm. where they get, uh, they got a little condo there and so that she could you know, play during the summer, uh, at the festival. And then, so, and my grandfather was kind of like a sportsman, you know, he was, he was really into skiing and tennis and swimming and stuff like that. So yeah, you know, we had a, my brother and I had a a good love and admiration for him. And then just, you know, at a really early age, we'd go out and visit him, you know, and then starting at two, um, yeah, started skiing at Aspen Highlands in the late seventies. Nice. And yeah, that's how I, got into it. And then by probably, I don't know, f- five, eight years old, I was like aware that I really liked the sport. And then probably by 10, it was full blown obsession. You know? uh-huh. Just, you know, just honed in and focused on what skiing was. So, right. Yeah. And how did you end up in Salt Lake? Um, uh, so Salt Lake, uh, how did that happen? We were DPS was, I think three years in or so. And we, you know, we had this kind of utopian vision of all that was like the dream, you know, from the beginning was the lifestyle and, and kind of chasing power around, around the globe. But Colorado was HQ for a lot of us. Um, but we didn't have an, you know, we had some kind of temporary offices here and there, but the dream was that we would all work from laptops and, you know, still be able to do big trips and stuff. But that was a little bit naive, I think. So it got to the point where, you know, it was obvious that the complexity of the thing was growing to the point that we needed a central office. Yeah, I think a lot of us were in were in the kind of Denver Boulder area, like Marshall and Tyson, myself, uh, my brother Philip, who was you know running marketing. But we, I think yeah, we all knew that the you know just the core nature of the company, like we needed to be somewhere you know just more optimized and closer to snow. Mm-hmm. So we went through this whole process of you know just kind of. Yeah, doing the due diligence on whether we should HQ in a mountain town or, you know, in the cities. I think it was basically yeah, either Reno, Seattle, or Salt Lake, and and just went through that whole process. And then Turner, the engineer, was uh, he'd already situated himself in Eden, Utah, so that kind of he was already there. And and just you know, Salt Lake made sense from a it's a pretty unique place in the U.S. to you know, like have a ski company where you can just literally leave your desk in 20, 30 minutes, be skiing or testing product or, mm-hmm. and then back down and then have an airport, you know, just so close and right. all of that. So, and yeah, and like workforce and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's kind of a no brainer. And I think it's no surprise that all the, like most of the U S ski industry is now in Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say the, 
vast majority of it. But you went to Boulder for college? Yeah, I, uh, I kind of did a like tour de force of colleges. I started in Maine for a year, a school called Bowdoin, a really small liberal mm-hmm. arts school. And then um, kind of went through this like quarter life crisis deal where, you know, that was sort of like the family path of education versus my own real passion. And, and I think it was after my freshman year, I did uh, another season working uh, down in Las Lanas and skiing and, and just, I mean, I knew at that point, like, you know, that was my people, my tribe, you know, right. people I was living with and I was just hundred percent into it. So made the move to go out West, went to Boulder for a couple of years, hopped around, took some time off and then ended up at Colorado college in Colorado Springs for the last couple of years of school, which was, yeah, which was great. I skied almost every day there, you know, just, nice. Um, climbing, uh, like that was a cool program cause class, you know, that goes only till noon. They have this unique block program. And so we would just, we'd finish class, grab a quick bite. And then, you know, buddies and I would head right up to Pikes Peak. So we'd climb Kowars pretty much every day all winter. And mm-hmm. then, and then we had these block breaks where you had like four or five days off, something like that right. between your classes. So, you know, yeah, it was pretty conducive to a lot of, a lot of time on snow. Yeah. Right yeah. on. Was your family supportive of that kind of trajectory? Um, yeah, I mean, it, at first, I think, yeah, it was more from my mom's side, you know, there was like this, you know, what's my son doing, you know, like, we going, yeah, going, we raised you well. Yeah, yeah, what are you, <laughs> what are you up to? And, and my dad's always been or was super open minded, you know, despite, you know, he's super well educated man, but he, had, you know, believed, I think, in freedom and following yeah, following your passions. So I think it was more just like the internal expectations that have been built up in me as a child unconsciously, you know, mm-hmm. and I had to just fight those and get over them and, and just follow my heart eventually. Right. So yeah, I had this one deal where I remember, uh, yeah, I was just fighting, fighting that, that battle. And, and I drove, I got in my car and drove from, from Bowdoin and I, I, I spent like one night at Bowdoin uh, in the beginning of a semester and had my buddy and my roommate, we were all lined up to live together and stuff. And I spent one night there and I was like, woke up in the morning and I said, Hey man, I'm sorry. I just, I can't do this. I got to go back out West and then got in the car. I drove halfway across the country to Chicago and then turned around and drove back. No way. Like, and then spent one more night there and got up in the morning and, and just finally at that point decided, yeah, no, this is, this is wrong. And then drove all the way to Colorado and then that was it. Yeah. So commitment. Yeah. That was kind of, you know, it sounds silly, but yeah, it's like, yeah, just getting into knowing who you are as a young guy. You right. Know? And yeah, I called it. Yeah. Quarter life program. Just figuring out yeah, that's what great. you really wanted. Yeah. And that's a pretty, pretty key inflection point. Right. Because had you not pulled the plug, maybe DPS wouldn't have happened and all these great adventures, you know, who knows where you'd be. Yeah, totally. And probably not, not very happy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, people often ask like, oh, you know, what did you, what did you study to do this job or mm-hmm. whatever? And it's like, you know, honestly, it was a lot of years of skiing and, right. and just focusing my whole life on skiing. Cause then you, you know, I think in business people talk about authenticity and it's not, authenticity isn't something you can manufacture. It's either authentic or not. Right. And before I got into making skis, I mean, I was yeah, it's just solid decade, decades of seasons, you know, right. and, but yeah, it's sort of at the core of the sport, you know, like yeah. traveling for best rounds, best snow and, and having that be the main focus of life. So. Right. Well, it's really a lesson in chasing your passion. I mean, it's, I think it's an overused terminology, but you know, following your heart and your dreams and things have a tendency to work out obviously. Right. They, yeah. They did for, for you guys. Yeah, there's there's no right path, and just yeah, you follow what what you feel, I guess. Yeah, right yeah, on. So, so uh, and I love last night <laughs> when when someone asked you if you were an engineer, and you said, "No, I uh, majored in um, English in college." <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, but I'm I'm curious. Can talk to me about the early days of DPS? You know, because you mentioned selling skis out of your garage um, in the early days and, um, you know, kind of jet setting to chase pal and dreams and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, the early days must've been super glorious looking back on them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think 
you know, obviously as we sit today, it's kind of, yeah, the, the concerns <laughs> are, uh, as a business are, you know, are the, the things you have to be aware of are, are very different than they were then, you know? And I think in those early days, it was just this, yeah, almost like rebel cry, you know, it's just creating, yeah, we're just all about, yeah, hundred percent about one skiing and two, just creating these tools, like the, the complexities that now exist just weren't there. So it was, it was just like raw energy, you know? Yeah. We were just putting it together, you know, it was like, yeah, like shipping skis out of garages and, and hand delivering them to customers like around and, and cool energy around the, yeah the whole thing. So did you get into it with any preconceived notions of where you wanted it to go or was it just kind of come out of the, the passion? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say it was 98 to 99% purely out of the passion. I mean, it's not to say we were just flying totally blind. And I think there was, of, of course, you know, if we were going to do it, it was, we we're going to try to do it right and not and do it so that it could scale, you know? And I think like a lot of the decisions that were made early on were, were made with scaling in mind, but it wasn't, it wasn't like the, it was just like this kind of subconscious sort of driver behind the scenes, you know, like you just had to be aware that, you know, everything you do now is, it could have an impact on how this thing evolves right. five years later, 10 years later. And so, yeah, there was always this consciousness of being a complete ski brand and one day kind of going toe to toe with like the big established Euro brands. So that was always there, but there was, there was just real energy around the moment. It's kind of like we talked about last night, you know, all the skis we were creating at that point were just fully our own ex exploratory passion plays. They weren't, you know, it's funny, like now I, I sit in sometimes in groups and you hear like designers or product managers talk about, we have a design brief, identify our target customer, you know, yada, 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 the, you know, the kind of best practices approach of creating a product, which was, we had absolutely zero of, and to this day still, we don't really follow that. You know, it's just like, let's build the stuff that we think is cool and that we want to ride on. And yeah, if you look at projects like the 138 or Spoon and stuff, I mean, that's pretty evident that back then we were just interested selfishly in our own, exploring our own skiing and pushing the boundaries of our own skiing rather than trying to worry about who, how many units someone was going to buy of something. So I love the non-conventional start to a company, right? I mean, that's, I think when we were talking about earlier, that's how a lot of beautiful companies come to be, you know, they might change over time, but you guys have created something out of total passion to it behind a sport. And, and now you're trying to raise the bar on an actual company and how it functions, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look back at the original dream is it's fully around just creating sort of the best tools possible, right? To, that allow us to dive deeper into the actual art, the act of skiing. Like that's the foundation of the whole thing, you know? And, and that's to be true to that idea. It's like the product has to keep getting better. And in order for the product to keep getting better, the company around it needs to evolve to facilitate that process. Like, cause you need more capital to buy, more machines, more, you know, yeah, as you see, like kind of garage brands, there's so many that have, have that passion and, you know, lifestyle behind it. But if it doesn't evolve to a certain point where, you know, you can put in like, like a really sick suite of stone grinders and edge finishers and, you know, and sophisticated tooling and good engineers, your product is, it's going to stall in the water. So it's kind of a, it's a natural evolution that I think is true to the original vision. You know, it's like just this aspiration to create perfect tools. So yeah, I mean, I don't like lament or regret the where it is now versus where it was because right. hopefully the skis just keep getting better and all the other stuff we get into keeps getting better. And have you found that that's um, fulfilling on a different level? Say when you were younger and riding was everything and, you know, obviously you're on a mission to build the perfect carbon ski but do you find the, the business side of it to be fulfilling as well? Yeah. In some sense, I mean, it's, you know, it's like being in the mountains, there's challenge all the time, right. Just to like cultivate your own skiing to whatever, climb, climb a peak or be able to ride certain type of terrain. You know, it's, it's always progression and, and I think, and challenge. And usually I think in our world, people, they get off on a little bit of suffering and a little bit of challenge, right. That's without that, it's, yeah, it's not just like unicorns and rainbows the whole way. So, so I think the business side is, in its own way is, is pretty, it's pretty fun, even though it's suffering. I feel like I'm, we're in the middle of a climb all the time and we're, 
kind of a little dehydrated and you know legs are starting to go or something you know? right. but it's, <laughs> yeah it's like that and and it's good i mean it's it's natural right it's just the way the way the world we live in is structured and like you i think we were talking about before it's just like you need some you need viability the challenge is matching that viability with that purity and, and passion and like how can you balance those two things it's a rare thing i think to get right so and i'm not saying we've done it yet but it's like it's something fun to try to aspire to and like figure out Talk to me about the early days, the trips to South America, red wine. Um, I've heard about napkin drawings. Yeah. Things things like this. Uh, when I first got into the ski world, it was with my first partner, DB, uh, Cyril Bonnet, Swiss guy. And we became like just really tight, intense ski buddies or uh, ski partners, you know, in, in Las Lanias, spending multiple seasons there. He really smart guy, came from uh you know brand management in the wine industry and just like solid very intelligent businessman but also like ultra talented skier and snowboarder former swiss national team racer and then you know just kind of how some of those like mountain partnerships get going we're just Mm -hmm. feeding off each other riding every day and pushing each other super hard in the mountains and and naturally you know in a place like las lanias where you're in this awesome womb like escape from the rest of the world you know it flows into the you know, fun nightlife and just late nights at wine bar and down at Johnny's and stuff. And that's kind of where it all started. You know, it was, it wasn't like, it was very unconscious at first, you know, I was skiing on skis that I had bent rocker into and custom painted, but never thought of, you know, they were just for myself. Cause I, it was an expression of what I wanted to be riding on. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't like a commercial deal. And it, I think it took kind of this relationship and stuff to kind of flush out. That's like, Hey, there's this need here you know there's like this tribe of people traveling around the world that you know aren't being represented by both in terms of brand and equipment or skis um, in terms of the lifestyle and passion that they're living so yeah there was you know a lot of these ideas just sort of being flushed kind of on chairlifts before runs standing on top of amazing runs in Las Lanias or late at night in wine bars or right yeah so yeah napkin stuff concepts on product on brand all, Mm -hmm. all that started really uh down there yeah and how did how did the concept of rocker originate for you because i think a lot of people here in tahoe particularly where we're shane centric you know because right. shane, shane was a local guy and friend and you know a lot of people think that that was a expression from from shane but if i understand it correctly it's what you guys were doing birthing in south america yeah exactly like i think that was a time where skiing was changing so much and it was so fluid and and you know i think like both these projects were happening kind of concurrently it's like 2003 and and yeah peter you know peter turner the dps engineer was the engineer that worked with shane on spatula for example at volant yeah at volant and um yeah in terms of my attack to it for that it was it was a combination of things one was like many skiers been like a aspirational fantasy surfer growing up like I just love watching surfing and surf movies and stuff like that and just just enjoyed the aesthetic flow of what surfing is and then um and then on those early Las Lanias years I my roommates and guys I was in the mountains with were there's like a bunch of pro snowboarders that were coming down there so I started skiing with a lot of guys a lot of snowboard guys and and just watching that same kind of flow in deep snow and the planing and circling that back to surfboard uh, design where rocker is obviously a, a thing, right? And uh, yeah, just kind of putting two and two together. And then, uh, you know, I had one moment in the late 90s where I, I landed in air with a pair of powder pluses and bent the shovel too. And then that just kind of like put everything together, you know, like yeah, it wasn't just one moment. I think it was this accumulation of skiing with snowboarders back then, watching surfing, having this thing happen being, you know, first, the, the obvious thing was that we needed much more surface area on the skis, like wider skis. And then the rocker part came in right there. So yeah, it was Oh two. I think that we first marketed the tabla rasa and, and started, you know, had diagrams and showing rock, you know, rocker and the benefits of rocker and stuff. And I think the spatula came out right about the same fall. I think it was almost the same or a little after actually. So all these projects, they were both happening at once. And right. You know, I remember having a couple of great conversations with Shane about ski design. And I think there was like this kind of mutual, I don't know, respect about like just pushing the boundaries of, of what skis are and 
how they should be shaped and look like. So yeah. right, super rad. We were lucky enough to meet Peter, which we can we can talk talk about him too. A few years ago at the DPS factory, and we the three of us from the shop were all completely fanboying. You know, getting to meet him because between yourself and him you know, you guys are responsible for a lot of the shapes that we've had some of the best days of our life on. So it was very cathartic for us. You know, he was telling us these great stories of, I think he was shipping Shane chubs and Shane would put them in the parking lot at Squaw and drive over them back and forth, back and forth, back and forth <laughs> to put the rocker in, in yes. the tip and tail. Same deal. I mean, yeah, like that's once I, uh, if I look back just to relay my own experience to that, you know, which is an awesome thing to imagine, but yeah, that's what we were doing is we were uh, like for a couple of years there, the custom painting, and then we were bending rocker into metal laminate skis, which you can do, you know, you can, aluminum ski, we were, you know, I set up a jig and just bend the shit out of the shovel to create the rocker into it. And yeah, again, this was a couple of years before we even thought about having a ski company or anything. It's just what, just what we knew worked. Right. And, uh, and yeah, so that's funny. That's, I, I never heard that story, but yeah, that was all, yeah, it was just this time in skiing, as we all know, like that late nineties, early two thousands where the sport was just completely changing. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, yeah, there were these kind of two parallel ski design worlds happening, right? which Peter sort of, yeah, he's, he's kind of like, a the common thread between both of them, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Or at least, yeah. Once, once he came to DPS after. So. Right. Yeah, he's. Yeah. I love seeing him at the summer show outdoor retailer. You know, he's cru he's cruising the halls in like his Birkenstocks and socks, and you know, <laughs> he's, he's a, such yeah. a such a character. Where did the word rocker come from? Is that something you guys coined or? No, I mean it's for sure not. You know, it's just something we borrowed from surfing and even footwear. I mean, footwear had rocker at that point. From surfing, it was obvious. Yeah, so I think we. You know, if you want to attribute stuff like when the spatula came out that was called reverse camber reverse side cut like right. the word rocker wasn't into it but i think from our surf influence with the tabla rasa that predecessor to what then became the lotus 120 uh in dps world yeah we in yeah we started marketing in his rocker and i was not it was just taken from surfboard design where the same concept exists right yeah. and i've read a lot that you in your designing and self-exploration in the sport um that you draw a lot of parallels to not so much sliding on snow but thinking of it as a, a different medium yeah like water true yeah 100 percent. i mean it's yeah powder snow is it's something where you're planing there's lift to get up to the basically the surface and have the the craft i guess like plane on on top rather than inside and that's that's the big leap, obviously, that happened in skiing, right? Is we went from bouncing up and down, restricted to the fall line, you know, and going in and out of the snow to all of a sudden planing on top of it and, and not losing speed at any phase of the turn. And that's the big difference. And, and that's where, you know, once you're, all these ski designs are driven by an aesthetic of like how you envision yourself skiing in that snow. And for me at that early time, you know, when I was, riding with uh these with snowboarders basically in las lanas you know i was on these 70 underfoot skis that came from race world i mean they were wide for they were quote all mountain skis but you just put two and two together you know it's like you're riding with these guys on these big runs that are going twice as fast as you that are planing you know and just being really creative with the terrain and and you just see the way those like this you know snowboards riding in the snow it's on top it's not the tip is never submerged yeah i find it weird that even today you know you look at ski magazines it's like like mm -hmm. any shot where i don't see the tip outside the snow to me means that there's like this inefficiency happening there's i mean there's exceptions of course when it's super super deep and you occasionally dip in harder which is fun too but you should be able to pop right back out and get back on plane and that's the aesthetic the style the surfy style that you know we've always espoused we in the beginning days we had stickers that said like lotus 138 beyond face shots and mm -hmm. nobody's like well face shots are you know that's the best thing in skiing We're like no it's not there's there's this whole other world beyond it you know right. and that's the planing you know, the actually generating energy in a turn in, in super deep snow. I'm kind of rambling on here, but that's... No, it's fantastic because, I mean, we're full-on believers too, you know, and we didn't we didn't understand it until we experienced it ourselves. But how, how does the powder road play into the first years of the company and its kind of evolution? You know, that's, again, that 
like hearkening back to those times where it was, um, it was a little bit more simple. You know, we were this fledging, just kind of startup ski company, but at the time it's like the, it's kind of funny to think back on it. It's like as much emphasis there was on like shipping skis, there was on making sure that we were like full on just right at the, the tip of the spear of the sport. And so powder road was happened, you know, like a year or two into DPS and it was this juggled kind of thing that, you know, we were trying to deliver skis and get over to China and all this crazy stuff, but it was like prioritized that, Hey, we needed to take these three months and do this dream trip that we'd always wanted to do. And so, yeah, that was, that was good stuff. And it was like from a skiing perspective it was super enlightening just because yeah we were testing a lot of big mountain skis at that point and just creating the formative ideas of lotus 138 world and spoon world and stuff and then at the same time doing a trip that's now pretty commonplace but back then i just yeah it just didn't happen you know it's like dragging sleds from colorado to alaska and skiing the whole way up like right now yeah it seems quite normal in ski world or at least core ski world but back then i mean it was pretty out there for sure. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was cool. If I mean, it fit into the the brand for sure, and also the product. Right. But, you know, the I think business folks at that point would question, it's like, you know, like what are you doing, man? Like, right. But, <laughs> but I think it was pretty. It's it was super core to what what we were doing. Anyway, right. So, and what and important, really important, yeah. And what did it teach you that three months? It uh, it was just I, I just felt right but i think it was just more an extension of what we'd already been living you know it's like the skiing is one part but the friendships and like sharing that is just completes the whole program yeah it taught me the i guess the value and importance of those founding principles you know it's right. is that like being with your friends in the mountains and then also trying to create something is also a cool project you know it's not just the the act of that run but working like as a team with your friends to create like media for example is is also super rewarding it adds like this extra fun element to to this the skiing part you know right so that was cool and i think if you look the dps now like the cinematic program and the you know the long relationship with oscar you know it's the same thing it's it's naturally what we wanted to do it's not it's not like it was some marketing concept right know? It's not like we said, oh, if we, you know, this would be a great marketing program. No, it's just like we, this is what we do naturally. Right. It's who we are. Yeah, exactly. So that's a good, good segue. Talk to us about cinematic and how that came to be, what it is, how it came to be and, and the reasons behind it. Yeah. So cinematic, again, it's the same thing. It, it, you know, it's extension of the powder road. It's this, you know, I think natural creative desire to, to document the experience in the mountains. You know, I learned pretty early on in ski world that, it's not as good to make compromises in terms of who you spend time in the mountains with. Yeah. Like having a really core group that are, uh, that are about deep friendships is, is pretty damn important. And so I think we, yeah, over the years, this is a cinematic program. It's yeah. It's these good friends that know each other. Like, you know, once you suffer in the mountains together over many years, it's like you, you really know a person I think, and you get comfortable with them and you, yeah, you know, all their flaws and all their triumphs and, and yeah, so that's that's what it was and what it is, and it's gone for quite a while now. And I think yeah, we're in the process now of rethinking what it should be in the future. And because yeah, we've had a good run at it. I felt lucky to always be surrounded by like at least uh, yeah on this media side, just super talented people. Like you know, Oscar as a photographer, you know, I think is one of the best in the world, if not you know. And and then Ben. And that's. Ben Sturgeluski. Sturgeluski, yeah, he's, you know, he's made all the cinematic films to this point. Just really, you know, creative, artistic eye compared to kind of the pop ski porn world. So it's fun to, yeah, just, just express yourself that way. Right. And, and I think a lot of it's a good point that you make about the friendships and how deeply meaningful they can be for, for folks like us living in the mountains. Cause I think people from the outside world could look at it, whether it's our parents growing up or, you know, people in the quote unquote mainstream of society and wonder, you know, you guys have to grow up at some point, you know, all you do is ski and climb and, and run and, but they don't quite understand the, the power of those relationships. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. I think for us, I think it's portrayed in the films. Yeah. It's something super powerful. And in Oscar, is he, who is he? So Oscar is a uh, Swede, you know, like many Swedes, you know, ski bum down in the Alps. And 
we met him, uh, you know, talking about the early days of DPS or DB before when Bonnet and I started, like decided to make this thing a company. It was like, I remember talking to him and saying the season was closing in Los Lanius. And I, I said, all right, like, what's the like Los Lanius of Europe? What's the like undiscovered place that is like, you know, has fantastic skiing that there, you know, there's no one there and we can kind of keep this thing rolling. And if we're going to make a company, we need to like hole up somewhere. And, you know, I was curious at that point, I hadn't really spent any, uh, you know, substantial time skiing in Europe. So I had just, again, the personal, like selfish desire to like kind of post up there, especially if we were getting into this thing with a Swiss guy. So, so he's like, yeah, I've been going to Engelberg. I've, you know, this is a pretty special spot. Like, you know, there's nobody there. And so we, we hold up there to, to write our business plan, our first one. And there was maybe 10, 15 Swedes that were living in this hotel as well. And one of them was Oscar. He had just bought a camera, like at that point. And we needed some marketing material for our website for the big launch. I remember he showed up with like his first kind of 35 millimeter slides, you know, and he's, I remember he was like really nervous about it and we met and we were like, yeah, these look okay. You know, we'll give it a shot. And <laughs> we went up and, and shot photos and, and they, yeah, they, you know, some of them turned out really great. And then, uh, so that was kind of cool. Like, you know, we, got some cool shots for the website yeah. and the first thing. And then from there, it just, yeah, you know, I don't know how friendships build, you know, it's just, there's no formula for it, but next thing you know, yeah, we were on powder road together and then it became this really strong relationship over decades now. So, right on. And yeah. Swedes, I, from my experience are pretty, they're pretty rowdy folks. Yeah. There's gotta be some good stories there. Yeah. Cause it's been a, what, 15 year relationship or yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Oscar, hopefully you're not listening to this, but <laughs> yeah, no, it was like those, those early years, uh, especially where, yeah, there's some really fun, you know, I just, when you just said that, I just had this flash in my head of like Swedes, like, uh, blowing fire out of their mouths on, you know, with grain alcohol, <laughs> like in those early Engelberg years, but yeah. yeah. And it's been fun. And, and that whole connection to like Swedish ski culture has been really cool too. You know, like Charlotte, um, who runs our European operations, we also met at Engelberg those early years and, and just, yeah, developed a lot of cool friendships and connections through Oscar and f through other Swedes that, yeah, I just have a passion for, for skiing, you know? Right. Cool. So, yeah. Maybe you answered this earlier, but was there a moment of epiphany and you're coming up riding in South America and whatnot, where you knew designing skis was going to be your calling? For me, it's always been this tension of, I think like personally wanting to push my own skiing as far as I could and like trying to reconciling my own like selfish desires to kind of cultivate that art versus being a, um, yeah, a designer as well, or like a business person. So, so those things have always lived in tension, but I think it's like a, probably a necessary tension to get to where we've gotten to. How do I put it? It's, yeah, it's like really selfish. It's like you're, you're building these things cause you want to push your own art one step further. And I think that's ultimately what makes, makes it progress is that this kind of selfish impulse to to just get better sticks so you can carry this many more G's into a turn or, or like, you know, not be inhibited in style by the ski and not doing what you want it to do and stuff like that. So right. I remember telling my dad at one point, like, Hey, I'm going to build skis, you know, and like <laughs> just totally naive. And he's like, okay, that sounds good. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great endorsement. Yeah. Well, I love the categorization of, of skiing as an art, you know, cause I think too often we look at it as a athletic pursuit, you know, but the way you guys frame the sport, you know, surfing steep angle pow at speeds, I think it really, for, for me, hits the reset button on how we even frame our sport. I think once you feel it or you've had those sensations and you have like an openness to them, you realize that it's something super powerful, you know, and not to get cheesy or mystical about it, but it really becomes something beyond like, you know, and, and you can apply this to, yeah, to probably so many different physical pursuits or expression, you know, whether it's other sports or dance, for example, or, you know, whatever it's like, you're, yeah, you have that opportunity to kind of enter into the state that, that, yeah, basically like changes your whole existence, your whole conception of reality, et cetera. So to me, it's, yeah, it's always been beyond, yeah, beyond like just the sheer athletic 
pursuit. It's, right. it's something more. And for me, it's always been, it's an, it's an aesthetic thing. It's like how it looks on the outside and how it feels are, are correlated. And if you can bring that level higher and higher, then you, you, for me, I, I've always gotten more fulfillment out of it. So the challenge has always been like how, how close to perfection can you actually get in terms of like your style and your, how the thing both looks and feels. Cause there's this, yeah, there's this direct relationship. I feel like when it feels good, it usually looks good. Mm-hmm. You know, when it looks good, it usually feels good. Right. If you can keep climbing rungs on those ladders, like your experience gets deeper and more fulfilling. When I think a lot of research and data or at least um, focus is coming out now on that topic of, you know, flow state where, think that's where we all have an addiction to these mountain sports because it's always trying to find the, the best turn or the the best run and um when you're in that i think there's a lot of personal fulfillment that if you don't do it it might be hard to to understand unless you've you've dipped your toe into the water it's you know intellectually you can't understand it right it's not like a thought that is comprehended it's something that's felt and, right and yeah. it's i think it's common in all activities physical endeavors you know, I can remember playing soccer growing up where there's specific and vivid memories I have of particular occasions where your body just, there's a sw- switch that's flipped and you're on autopilot. Yeah. And it's almost an out-of-body experience. Yeah. And then to have that in, in the mountains in these beautiful settings. Yeah. It's special. Yeah. And I think 100% it can exist in anything, you know, whether it's playing soccer or calligraphy or, right. you know, whatever it is you do for sure. You know, for skiing, it's just, it's like almost easier access in a way because you have like gravity and levitation and speed. All these things are like, make that portal, I think, a, a little bit bigger. Right. You know, than like, I don't know, whatever it is you do, you know, that's, it, at least it takes a, a finer, more refined mind to get into that state and in, in different places. Whereas, yeah, skiing's like this, it's just this crazy, you know, like, yeah, just entryway into like, access to powerful stuff that consumes your your conscious mind right so it's kind of active meditation but at speed yeah speed's a <laughs> speed's a big a big part of that yeah you know, if you can combine speed with just effortlessness right to me that's what um yeah it's pretty attractive about all these glide kind of gravity right pursuits yeah i always have that experience you know at the at the end of a killer run or of an epic day <laughs> or on the top of a peak even i just there's some pretty philosophical renderings i think that go on in your mind as a human you think of people that are at least i do anyway special in your life that may not be around anymore and Mm -hmm. it's kind of our our religion i think yeah and maybe we don't talk about it enough in the outdoor space but you know it's this it kind of gets bastardized a little bit i think this adrenaline filled you know selfish pursuit but it's a much bigger experience yeah at least yeah, at least I've tried to convince myself of that, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, you, you always feel like a little burned a little bit when someone just says like, Hey, you're an adrenaline junkie or whatever, right. you know, it's like, oh yeah, I guess maybe like from an outside perspective, but inside you, you at least feel like, Hey, it's something at least a little bit deeper than that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's all personal, like how you, everyone interprets different experiences different way, but as we can know from our community and like the passion behind it, it's, there's obviously something there, you know, that, you know, something in that feeling that makes people change their lives to, to cultivate it and try to tap into it as much as they can. So, right. Yeah. So it's something there in the human experience that Mm -hmm. is pretty strong. Right. Yeah, totally. I've read or heard you quoted as saying you have this innate ability to translate what you feel on snow into a product what's that process look like for you it's something i'm still like really trying to cultivate and work on and you know i think there's a long way to go but uh, but i think in the early years it was about making these big jumps man the ski would work way better if it was 20 millimeters underfoot wider and had rocker and you know had this kind of general amount of tail rocker and balance here balance there these materials would help you know those are like the gross steps and i think over the last few years what i've most of my job has been is that fine-tuned detailed ability to translate what's potentially wrong with something or how it could be better on a more micro scale and that's like flex patterns or how a side cut design could work or what the difference between using this specific material or that specific material is and 
I'm not saying I'm any kind of dawn at it at all. And it's something I'm still really working on, but it's something that I have spent a lot of time trying to cultivate, at least in the last few years. And, and I think that's super important to, to keep the product moving forward. You, you need to kind of develop that ability to, to just hone in on details and, and understand why things are happening and translate that into design and engineering. You know? Right. So, yeah. and there's a tremendously in-depth iterative process for you right I mean, we we hear stories of you going to bachelor in the summer and lining up skis and putting very micro differences through their paces to try to make the best product yeah yeah I, that's part of it and and it's again i mean i think there's so much room to just keep improving and building but you you've got to get into that level of granularity to to really like raise the bar so yeah i get super obsessive over you know tens of millimeters in a flex pattern in a certain spot of the ski and some might say kind of crazy but i think at the same time it's yeah it's, it's what you need to do to, to push it forward so right kudos to you for doing it different and yeah. staying the course cheers there's a lot of different approaches and people out there for sure yeah but yeah we're trying to trying to scale and and make make the stuff you know it's grown to the point where it's not these four or five guys with laptops anymore you know there's 50 people in an office and in a factory and some of them like, you know, have multiple kids and lives and, you know, you, it's, you gotta, you gotta Stick. make it, you gotta make it work. And, and that's all happened relatively fast. So yeah, you gotta make, make the numbers work. And, and at the same time, keep driving the way we've always driven to, to just improve stuff, always improve, you know, that's what we're trying to do. So, right. Yeah. Just keep pushing it and don't get complacent that's the perfect ski that's the mission so right and perfect other stuff yeah right well and in a lot of ways it's no different than standing on top of a fierce line you can not ski it or get down it poorly or shred you know yeah it's great it's a great business analogy i think so your initial foray was the tabla rasa then there was the lotus 138 and then the progression in pal surfing was the spoon do you see the evolution continuing i think like testing those kind of really exotic Powskis is is a tough deal, man, because, you know, I, I think in an ideal world, you just have tons of money and you go heli skiing or cat skiing all the time. But if you're if you're on a budget, it's pretty hard to just get that head to head comparative testing of those kind of skis going, you know, like something can feel really good, but you're not you don't have the untracked runs back to back to like compare it to a previous iteration or it's not the same as testing a all mountain or a peace ski, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that said, I think we're, we've been pretty successful with some of these more exotic shapes, but they're built on speculation more than, you know, the refinement that we can get into by testing a peace ski where I can, yeah, I can lay out 10 different flex patterns of one shape and, and over the course of two days really come out with knowing what the right direction is for that ski or, you know, what, what the best, the winner is, you know, I just, can't like go up to Alta and, and just, you know, throw down 10 different spoons and pick the best one because it's just, yeah, the stuff's the tracked out. not there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, uh, so that's a little bit of a slower process, but that said, I mean, we've got a lot of ideas on how to refine what we've already done and, and spoon particularly, I think there's a lot of potential there, you know, we're talking about that dance of commercial viability versus like core, um, passion plays, you know, besides your shop, nobody buys spoons. And they just don't get it. The spoons that we're selling are, are either to like you guys or to our direct old guard customers, you know, who see the vision. So it's, uh, yeah, I was saying like, you know, I sit in meetings and, uh, you know, I bring up spoon and then there's like groans all over the room because, you know, it's like things a pain in the ass to manufacture and there's a lot of scrap associated with it, a lot of setup because it's complex and, uh, and, you know, you know, you're not going to sell a million of them. But at the same time, that's those kind of skis are the ones that match the original vision the, right. the most. So, and the ones that, you know, I'm interested in all of them, but for sure to get those apex moments, those are the tools that, that allow that, that access to, to that crazy world we were talking about before, you know, that the, yeah. the super apex of the sport. Right. No, I love that terminology. And just so people understand that who might not be aware of spoon technology, you know, I can relate a personal story probably 10 plus years ago now jeff and i one of my closest friends and key key um people at the shop we skied a 2400 run on the west shore and it was an epic day and you know we had probably 
were skiing two feet of fresh and he was on megawatts which was black diamond's original fat ski with a rocker tip and i remember watching him ski it and um thinking i would love to ski like that one day and he made probably i don't know 10 turns down this 2000 foot run Mm -hmm. just complete shredder you know yeah and um i thought i'm never going to be that good of a skier and literally the f- the first day I was on my Lotus 138s, I skied that run in the exact same fashion. Yeah. Because it's a it's kind of a Clark Kent scenario where you <laughs> walk out of the phone booth and you're an incrementally better skier because the skis do so much work for you. Right. But the fun factor, and we we use that terminology of you know if you haven't experienced either the Lotus 138 or the Spoon, that it's really it is like trying to describe sex to a priest because mm. you can't unless you've had that direct experience, you know, you can't quite fathom it. Tell the folks listening what the, the concept is behind spoon. Kind of harken back to what we were talking about earlier, like the idea of planing, you know, and, and just this surfy kind of feel on skis. The idea has always been to create the, um, angles and power that you say a racer has on hard snow, but in deep pow, right. And that's the surf. That's the, that's where the sensations in my mind are, are the strongest. When you get low density, amazing steep pow, and you're just, you know, you're, you're still pushing against it and planing and just having full creativity, you know, that's, that's the liberation. So Spoon World is basically about, um, just the way, way a 2D base works in the shovel is that at high angles, and it's, this is especially when you cultivate high angles, um, the tip wants to pull you back up the hill. It wants to like pull you deeper into the turn. And what the spoon does is basically frees up the shovel so that no longer exists. So it gives you just a, a you know, an extra level of, of looseness up there and less resistance, especially when the ski is on a high angle in the snow. So you can imagine if you, if you can just imagine like a 2D ski, you, you're flat and then you get into a turn and then the angle of the ski starts building, 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 building. And that running edge there is now starting to hook and and play with the snow in a way that's dictating a turn. If you turn that same shovel uh, at a high angle with this hull shape, it's like a boat in a turn. You know, it's there. There isn't a distinct edge anymore, and there's less resistance. So, so it's twofold. It's like one is no, the ski's no longer dictating the the pull or radius of the turn, especially at high G's, which means that that you're getting more emphasis on under your foot and in the tail. So you have more thrust. You have more. Uh, into the next turn, you have more creativity at the top of the turn to either slarve it or, you know, carve it or what, whatever you want to do. That, that just opens up that program. And then ultimately, you know, to continue this planning idea, you're you're scrubbing less speed because the, the tip isn't, there's less resistance with the snow. So it's just giving you a lot more creativity to do stuff. And, and you know, when we talk about the whole face shot program, it's like, you know, now with a spoon, you can get back up on plane um, if you have to slow down to shut stuff down or you want to get into the snow, it just allows you to get back up on plane at any ski angle much quicker than you otherwise would be. So overall, it's a nice creative addition to to the menu. You know? Makes it a much different blank canvas to shred on. Yeah, and that's that's the whole goal is just to yeah, get creative out there and, and have the freedom to do things intuitively. That's the whole thing. You know, we talk about that state. It's like... If you have to think about it, it's you're no longer in that fun place. If you can do stuff without thinking about it, that's when it gets really fun and awesome and you dive into these kind of mystical world, right? So, yeah, having your body and your subconscious be able to control the way you ski, the way you turn, how you use the terrain without your conscious mind getting involved is that's the magic nut. And, and if it's the spoon kind of, it, it just takes one step away you know, one inhibiting step away from the equipment towards doing that, I guess, is the way I think about it. Yeah, that's so. rad. I mean, we're all chasing that endlessly fulfilling perfect turn or run or what have you or climb. Do you think that's something that can ever be satiated? I mean, yeah, if we can all think back, right, to like some moments, like a couple runs we've had or a few just snapshot little experiences that will just live with us. It seems like almost you know, memory doesn't scrub them, you know, they're, they're always there. And, and those are those moments where, 
where it's kind of happened for you, you know, and you've gone into that state. And, you know, for me, at least as a person, and I, it almost becomes this, oh man, now we're going to get, now we're going to get out there, you know, it's I love like, it. Let's do it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's like, it's almost this, it's like a guiding force to potentially to, to at least help you figure out how to live the rest of your life. And you think, man, it's like, if I could replicate what I feel on snow, you know, in these sensations and somehow transfer that to, you know, my existence down in town and the rest of the 24 hours of my life, then that's a realized life to me, you know? And so I think it's, it's a teacher in a way, you know, it's like, like, this is how humans have the potential to live. And you can, you can, you get this glimpse into that window, you know? kind of mystic traditions that you know people sitting on mats for decades you know i think and probably cultivate like a you know a, a deeper or just more constant interaction with the state but in skiing it's like even as this you know like a young you know whatever 17 year old just cocky dude you can you can open this window you know and just get a glimpse into into what it's like over there and then and it's i think it's how you take that experience and how you kind of metabolize it and use it for the rest of your life is, is what's kind of interesting it's super powerful and it's always there to tap into yeah our buddy dave nettle says a lot of times you know i joke I, people ask me why i do these slideshows he's been doing slideshows for 40 plus years mm-hmm. and he's a total local hero and hard man that we all look up to but he jokes around that his response when people ask him why he does the slideshows is that you know hey i'm doing it for world peace because if I can go out and inspire someone to chase their dreams in the mountains or, just, like you said, just harness that energy to be a better person, then there's no time for war and strife and craziness. And I think that comes back to if we could splash that mountain experience and the power of it yeah. to, a, to a broader audience, society at large, it, it could be a much different world. I, I agree. I mean, it, it's it's kind of a utopian vision for sure. But yeah, you always you have these kind of dreamy thoughts occasionally. And I remember growing up just watching, I think it was like a Warren Miller movie where he read a quote of Otto something or another. It's a pretty famous quote in the world of history of skiing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was like, uh, if everyone skied, there'd be no wars, you know. Right. And, and, and even as a little kid, I remember like, oh, what does that mean? You know, and like, and then you get into skiing and ski life and you, you kind of get it, you know, it's like, man, if we could live in a world where our kids, you know, had more exposure to this kind of thing, probably end up a slightly better world, I think. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Cause yeah. it seems like, you know, you have your most in-depth and intimate conversations when you're in the skin track or, you know, when you're drinking beers after, you know, a great day and, and there's gotta be a reason for that. It doesn't just happen. No. Yeah. And it is, isn't it so cool how like you can just make at least for the moment, like seems like pretty deep connections with people, like strangers. Even when you share a great day or a great run, it's like you're you're just existing on this kind of similar plane, and you can connect. You know, so right? That common ground's really powerful. All of us are tapping into something kind of universal there. Obviously, I think you know we're all just like taking a sip of it and yeah, enjoying that drink together. You know, so it's, yeah, it's cool. It's powerful. Right on. Who have your mentors been? I mean, in terms of just Fair game, life, whatever. Ski world, real world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, there's been many, of course, but I'm just things popping into my head right now. I mean, the guy that really taught me how to ski, Bill Gant, who was just you know late 70s, early 80s, just classic ski bum. You know, had this beat up white truck with you know like a rifle in the back and a big shaggy dog, and he had a big burly mustache. And you know, I was this whatever 12 year old kid from New York City. You know, coming two weeks a year to, to ski with this guy. And, and he, you know, he just had that same aesthetic vibe that oh, we all do now. You know, he was all about just, he had all his like super secret lines and he was just soulful, he, you know, and I, he's the guy that like totally got me into the, that style meant something in skiing, you know, even at 12, 13, he would, you know, tell me subtle things about like, don't, you know, move your wrist a little bit like this when you pull, plant your pole or do this or that. And if the way I think now, I think, I, I got so much from this guy, you know, and he was just super cool. And, you know, as a 12 year old, 13 year old kid from New York riding the lift with him and, you know, having some guy be like, you know, Hey, you should check out this album by Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. I was like, Oh, really? You know, like, <laughs> like, you know, just opened up to this whole world of skiing and like core skiing and like classic Western kind of soulful ski bumming that, 
that, yeah, from both a cultural standpoint and the actual writing performance standpoint, like he was, I think, a huge influence on my life. Right. For sure. And then, yeah, man, I, I don't know. I'm inspired all the time, like by people that just show you good examples. Like we went to Kyrgyzstan last year and our, our guide for the first part of the trip was this guy, Pator, who, you know, I also grew up watching when I watched like Greg Stumpsky movies when I was little. He was in them, you know, it's just wild out there, dude. And Whistler. Canadian guy who's guiding and, and just seeing a guy like that who's, you know, older than me, but, you know, is living the sport still with just even more passion and, and crushing it out in the mountains. Like, I see that kind of thing and I'm just, and, and just, you know, such a character and funny as hell. And yeah, to me, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm always inspired. Right. There's, there's many strong and compelling personalities in our kind of mountain tribe. And I love the serendipitous nature of having the, them kind of cycle through our lives as we progress through the sport and life. A lot of times I'll try to talk to guests about how we deal with and process losing partners and friends in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Have, have you had, I'm assuming, like all of us, a decent amount of experience there? And can you speak to how you process it? That's a tough one. Yeah. Like, like a lot of us in this community, yeah, there's been, I mean, I can count on two hands or more, the people I've known and at least, you know, a few that I've considered really good friends. So yeah, it's, man, it's tough as hell. And I think it, it's a tough thing to reconcile. And I just speak totally honestly, I think that's kind of taken a bit of the, you know, the sheen off the like romantic side of mm-hmm. the sport for me, for sure. Yeah, it just undeniably has, you know. It's something we have to confront and deal with for sure, but it's 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 not easy, you know. And, yeah. And it, yeah, I'm not saying anything new, but it makes you question, yeah, what you're what you're doing out there and what you value and all that. And, yeah. And it's certainly, yeah, I think, taking a lot of that youthful, um, just kind of exuberance for the sport away from me. And I know you guys put Rob up on a pedestal at, at DPS. He was obviously a close friend, and yeah, and you've told some pretty core funny stories about him and his persona oh yeah i mean that guy was he's a legend he was just i don't think anyone i've met that's been as truly passionate and just just crazy dedicated to skiing as as that guy was you know he just existed on no, another level in terms of passion i think you know he was just so obsessed with it and yeah i tell people like the the first time i actually skied with him was was down in las Lanas and, and it was on a really yeah like a plus five star day or riding the first chair and 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 i all of a sudden you know i just look over and he's like dry heaving off the side of the chair you know and and i'm like dude you know what's wrong you're you okay he's like no it's totally normal it's fine i just get really excited you know like when it's (laughs) when it's this good and and that was like a normal thing for him you know he would just he would get so pumped on the prospect of what was coming that he would like dry heave himself into a frenzy classic <laughs> you know and yeah like i yeah big powder day he would he would just be pacing you know up at four or five a.m just walking around like a nervous wreck just right. ready ready for the day i mean that's it's kind of unheard of I right i <laughs> <laughs> love it yeah. um and he was he was heliguide in canada in haynes haynes yeah yeah and and yeah and that's where he passed away too mm. while he was guiding in an avalanche and yeah that that hit dps family super hard because he was involved in the company from yeah, he was one of the guys from the beginning, you know, part of that, yeah, the early crew, you know, always coming through and sleeping on the couch or whatever, his sleeping pad or whatever that he preferred over couches. And right. Yeah, he was just like total character that was kind of always around the tribe or traveling around. He lived in Telluride and, you know, worked at a restaurant and kind of set up his life around chasing pal like, like the rest of us. So, right. Yeah. And I know you guys, you refer to your athletes as koalas. Yeah. Is he kind of... A motivating force behind that uh no the koala thing is my brother came up with that actually my brother philip and you know within some of the stuff we've been skirting on you know the, like the depth of the ski experience i think a lot of what we've done with dps is yeah it's kind of a little bit our own path versus the ski industry where it's like you know you have athletes and team managers and you know it's kind of this commercial program and, right. and we never wanted to to make it like that because again it's it's for us it's more about that of course, we want to like pursue the art at its highest level that we can in terms of the like athletic side, the art side. But at the same time, the koala deal is is a is like a yeah, not getting to that silly level of like right. pro skier stuff and being about 
skiers in the mountains with your friends and and so the qual is like yeah it's a way to just make it a little more silly keeping it fun yeah so i know i know you've battled what a five-year-long <clears throat> run of injury a big casualty you know to your body and then blowing out your knee has that how's that influenced the your trajectory as a skier and then as well as into the company yeah i mean that like personally that's it's been super tough and i i'll bet you know a lot of people are athletes or whatever can probably relate you know it's like you get like you've lived your whole life and there's this like personal identity with what you do you know it's like kind of defines who you are a little bit and i've always a lot of my self-worth that probably as was related to like being a skier and and you know trying to be good at skiing you know and and then you know finally having these big injury hits is kind of like you know it just makes you step back and you know realize that just naturally you know through time and age like that's going to go away and it's going away and you're you know it's and it's it's something hard to deal with if you've like yeah if you've always identified with a certain like power that you get from being able to perform in the mountains and do all that so so yeah it's been it's been tough but like obviously a natural and necessary kind of learning experience so right which is good like i've i've embraced kind of being able to cultivate that ability to to design better and to really focus in on on product in a way that's separate pursuit from like going out and filming and that kind of deal you right know? so so yeah so that's just how things change and life's always in flux and right here we are so, yeah. yeah do you think you'd be fulfilled if you couldn't ride i mean through the through the design process and the company yeah i mean it's still skiing i mean you're you know like mm -hmm. a day it's it's a different type of skiing and it's it's not like it is much more cerebral than yeah the true like kind of power riding you know one like that sort of ultimate turn ultimate run focus but you know, it's, it's fulfilling intellectually in its own way, you yeah. know, cause like when I'm testing skis, it, it really is work, you know, like I, my brain is, I'm like exhausted after cause I'm thinking I'm having to focus in a different way, in a really intense way, like about the sensations and mitigate and, and kind of the effect of snow conditions and blah, 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 or like how I'm feeling that day or the way my boots are set up or whatever it is, you know, and, and then on the chairlift you're, you know, you're not just chilling and talking to people like right. I, like I, I test like pretty solitary usually so on the lift i'm just fully into my brain and like you know just trying to process stuff and make conjectures and right new theories about weird stuff like right skis and other equipment so yeah it's a it's kind of a fun challenging deal it's not as pure or as powerful as kind of the stuff we were talking about before but in its own right it's it's great because it circles back to creating those tools that hopefully help other people access that same, you know, apex moments. Right. I guess. Well, yeah. I think it's powerful too, because you are a visionary in the sport and you know, I don't think you guys get enough credit for that, for, for really revolutionizing the sport. And we were talking about earlier, once you do experience that, that performance and that shape and that feedback from the, the models you've come up with, we can't speak highly enough about it, but it's, uh, you know, to give that back in spades as you progress in your own career, I think is very admirable. Oh, thanks for the compliment on, yeah, on the skis and stuff. But yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, it's natural, you know, we're, we're not going to be 25 forever and, and stuff morphs and, and yeah, and it's, there, there is great fulfillment in, in just in trying to actually create stuff that that is closer to to what the vision originally was you know like a, a very aspirational vision you know it's one thing to have that it's another to actually you know grind out the the, the work and the the process to to build stuff that you know you'll never get to that level of perfection but if, as long as you keep kind of gnawing at it and scratching at it yeah that's a, like endlessly fulfilling process i think so you got a long stay left in the ski world obviously i mean you're still young how do you want to be remembered i don't know i mean i think like the ego part of you in those early days like yeah i always wanted to be you know like the just the best skier i could be and like leave a stamp in terms of a certain style right of like powder planing and power you know just a lot of the stuff we talked about like when i it was certainly in my 20s and early 30s like that was like the ego part of me, like, you know, that's what I desired was like a legacy just as a straight skier, you know? And, uh, 
but that's changed. And I mean, I think now, yeah, I, I don't really care as much about that side of it. I mean, I still, within the constraints of my body, want to like, just personally, I'm, I'm fulfilled by cultivating my own skiing and trying to make it better and better and more styly and you know and, and hopefully like the equipment is becomes that that thing that compensates for the deterioration of the body you know like we're working on this boot project as you know now and and that thing you know i'm like you know in my head it's like okay i'm like old and broken now well relatively i'm still like as you said not super old but but i'm like man if i get that boot to really work right then all of a sudden you know i'm gonna be able to ski this much better or that much or do this on snow that I wasn't able to do before. So, so that's kind of like internally the motivation, but externally, like that legacy thing, you know, as you get older and a little bit wiser, it's like, I just, yeah, I care less and less about that. And it's just, and, and in fact, I see that as a, almost a flaw, you know, it's like a personal flaw. It's like desiring a legacy in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like a distraction and not real. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I'm not saying I, don't in any way but I, at least i don't envision i don't want to be remembered in any way it's just as long as we can keep pursuing our our dream and walk that line that we talked about before then that's probably good enough <laughs> so. right on man i i can't thank you enough for sitting down with us and chatting today let alone coming to the show last night and making the uh, trip from salt lake it's, man, it's a great honor like, for us likewise what you guys do is super special and i know we're really grateful for it like you guys like what you do makes our brand it just enhances like it allows it to breathe so yeah it's great we're all yeah we're appreciative for thanks sure. man yeah we're all yeah. kool-aid drinking koalas in our own right i think yeah yeah, yeah. cool man well thank yeah. you for coming appreciate it brendan see I sincerely enjoyed a philosophical chat with skiing icon Stefan Drake. Series 2 of Afterglow continues on Friday, November 30th with Kim Havel, one of the premier ski mountaineers of our generation. Afterglow is produced by myself and my lovely wife Kristen Hanna, who also edits all episodes. The music of Season 2 is courtesy of the Cowboys Fiddle. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. Please subscribe, review, and tell a friend.